Welcome to episode 146 of the Fertility Podcast. I'm putting this to you at the beginning of August in 2018. And this year is flying. I hope wherever you're at, you're okay. If you found this podcast because you are searching for answers, having found out that you're route to parenthood isn't going to be straightforward, then let me just explain. My name is Natalie Silverman, your host. I have been making this podcast for over four years, having had successful fertility treatments. And my background is in broadcasting, hence making podcast content for you. I really hope that you spend some time having a look through either the previous episodes, however you've subscribed, if you haven't, do so, because it helps other people find this podcast. Or you can look around at thefertilitypodcast.com. You you can use the search box typing in what it is you're looking for hopefully it will pop up if not let me know I'll give you my details at the end of the episode so the whole point of what I'm trying to do is just give you other people's stories and expert interviews really and I've noticed lately there's a number of new podcasts popping up about fertility which is just brilliant because it proves that we like hearing other people talking about this tricky annoying, difficult, challenging subject that we've found is massively relevant to our lives. And there's also some amazing stuff coming up with people doing Insta Lives in the TTC community and events around the UK, I'm talking. And I'd be really interested to hear what's going on around where you live. Obviously, I'm based in the UK, but the podcast goes to over 50 countries. And if there's something going on where you are that you want more of a spotlight on, please, please do let me know and I'll do my best to try and kind of showcase it a bit more. Keep listening to the end to get all my details. And what you're going to hear in this episode is my chat with a lady who, after having failed IVF treatment, made that move to have a donor egg. And she explains her journey and all the ups and downs and what she's doing now. And um, this is one of the few times that I got to see my guest in person. Uh, She's called Sarah Esdale, and I think you'll find her insight into what she went through really helpful, especially if it's where you're at. So enjoy. I have come in central Manchester on a very hot afternoon in the current British heatwave to meet up with a lovely lady who I met at Fertility Fest, which if you haven't yet listened to any of the episodes that I've shared on my feed then we might have to fall out because I've not only harped on about it but I have shared all the sessions on the feed for the fertility podcast which is why if you've subscribed your feed might be going crazy over the last couple of weeks I've also shared a showcase episode with you to try and give you an insight into what was just a remarkable second festival um, created by Jessica Hepburn and Gabby Vortier and I met so many interesting people who are all different stages of their journey and it's given me so much content for this podcast and often I don't get to talk to people in person and when I do get the opportunity it's very exciting so Sarah told me that she was going to be in Manchester because she works as a theatre director on what she'll tell you in a moment so we've met up at a hotel in central Manchester and I'll seeing as you work in the theatre you can describe we're sat in the lobby and you can first of all welcome to the podcast Sarah thank you very much you can describe because I will share some pictures with this episode where we're currently sat I don't think I can do it justice Natalie to be honest we're sitting behind an enormous pair of sunglasses and above us uh, numerous white umbrellas and clouds are hanging now considering that you work in theatre and I'm sure kind of stage design and set design is something that you know you're, you're used to on a on a scale of one to ten what would you give where we are well, it's certainly the opposite of bland and generic, so I'm going to give it high marks. 
Go on, commit. Um, I'm going to give it a nine. Okay. I, I think... Good character. Because it is a budget hotel, ultimately. We won't, we won't name names. It's quirky. It's certainly quirky. Certainly one for the memory bank. My mum loves the use of the word quirky. She used to tell me as a kid I was quirky. Were you described as quirky at all in your childhood or in life? Uh, nothing so kind as quirky, I don't think. <laughs> Now, I will put in the show notes a link to the Fertility Fight Club session that Sarah spoke at, and um, I wanted to talk to Sarah more about her her fertility journey, um, being the parent of a child through a donor egg. And we've just been talking about how best to share Sarah's story, and we're going to cover the journey in not a nutshell but the kind of shorter version because what I'm interested to to get across to you from my conversation with Sarah in light of what I've been talking about recently is the kind of emotional journey and the emotional support around whatever happens on your fertility journey because I think there's some quite interesting points that I probably haven't covered yet so just explain like you did with me in the nutshell version of your journey to where you got to? So I uh, was very focused on my career, got married in my late 30s, started trying for a baby pretty immediately, moved on to regular IVF really immediately actually. Um, So I did my first round when I was 40 um, and went in to see my consultant who obviously shall remain nameless and he whacked a box of tissues on the desk and I said to my husband this is not a good sign. And he essentially said in these words, uh, your eggs are shot, forget it, adopt, or donor eggs. Those are your three choices. And I was absolutely shocked. Um, I'd never heard of donor eggs. I thought it sounded very Jerry Springer. Um, I'd sort of fully expected a first round to fail and I was all geared up for trying again. And uh, I was very upset, horrified, very hung up on genetics at that point. When I told my sister the news, she immediately offered to donate her eggs, which was incredibly kind of her. And uh, she was at that time 37 and had her, had two children of her own. So o- old to donate eggs, she won't mind me saying. And um, there was a whole palaver. She had to go through counselling with her husband. Um, we went through the egg collection with her. We froze those eggs. There was a huge hiatus and drum roll where I had to have an abdominal surgery and was unwell for a while. And I then had the embryo created from my sister's eggs and my husband's sperm uh, implanted and it failed. And I was distraught. I'd put my body through so much, I put my sister through so much. And um, at that point, on the recommendation of my consultant, I called my clinic in America. And they were uh, very positive about it, having failed with my sister's eggs, and they pointed out the emotional complexities of that to me. And it sounds crazy, but I hadn't fully considered that because I was so hung up on giving birth to something genetically connected to me. I hadn't really considered that the strangeness of a child's biological makeup being my sister and my husband. And um, I began treatment with the clinic in America immediately and uh, was pregnant within three and a half months of having first contacted them. So go back a step. You said you started that treatment immediately. How long did you give yourself from the failed attempt to that attempt? I phoned them that evening. So literally immediately? Literally immediately. I think, you know, from the people I speak to, so I now work as a a UK patient liaison for that clinic, and I've spoken to a couple of hundred women now, 
and they sort of pretty much divide into people who kind of prevaricate because they can't quite get their head around it and people who just want to jump and be pregnant yesterday and move forward and I was definitely in that latter group that I felt for me the times when the fertility journey was most unbearable were when I was doing something however small proactively to move forward towards having a child you said to me that you were speaking to a, a counsellor, a therapist from day one. What do you count as day one? Day one for me was at the beginning of my IVF process really and I was lucky to have a fantastic counsellor who um, I felt was had huge empathy and dealt equally well with my husband and my sister and my brother-in-law. She had to deal with a lot of complicated different personalities. And through the journey towards... I remember she, she first mentioned the idea of donor conception to me. And she tells me, I don't remember, that I rose from my chair in rage that she would even mention it to me, that I would even countenance anything so odd, right through to these kind of very strange trigger points. So I remember when I was quite pregnant, having a completely devastating and irrational fear that my parents wouldn't love my child as much as they love their genetic grandchildren. How hilarious that is now as they shower her with gifts and she's blatantly their favourite um, and I remember going to have a session to discuss that with her um, I also remember about three days before I flew out I got myself into a state where I would convince myself there'd be no blastocysts and I would have this futile flight to the States and nothing to implant and I was hyperventilating with panic and she was fantastically uh, helpful and reassuring at that point um, and, and another random session I had with her where I was preoccupied with concern about what I would do or say if people told me that my child looked like me. So it, it was unpredictable. The ways in which I needed support were unpredictable. And it was fantastically important to me to have somebody with a continuity of care, somebody who knew me and, and my journey and what uh, was sensitive to the irrational nature of some of those concerns. My favourite story about this counsellor is when I brought my daughter into the clinic in London to meet her when she was about week old I did it on a day when I knew the counsellor would be there and she came out of her office and she said my god she looks exactly like you and I said to her I've paid you so much money <laughs> and to, to sort of help navigate me through what happens if people say this and she said I don't care it's true and of course by that point as a mummy I don't care who says that she looks like me or otherwise we're going to talk a bit more about nature nurture and I just want to talk about the process of going to America there's episodes I've done talking about having treatment abroad and that's predominantly been Europe. So talk me through how often you had to go and how that process was. I don't know whether you want me to talk about the reasons that we opted for America rather than Europe. That's maybe a separate thing. But in terms of the process, it's quite literate. Sorry, we're just looking at some guy who's decided to kick a football into a net right by us because uh, aside the large sunglasses is a fake green carpet with um, a football and a goal We'll tolerate it for now until I go and give him a glare. I think you all might want details of this hotel at the end of the podcast. Just <laughs> come and have a look, to be honest. Sorry. So, about two America. Trips, only two trips to America required. One is a sort of recipient day where you have a dummy transfer and the partner does a, if you have a male partner, partner does a sperm sample and you talk about money and you talk about how to pick the donor and you talk about your drug regimen and you meet your nurse and it's overwhelming but completely vital. So they don't really want you to come into that environment for the first time on the day of transfer. And then the second visit when you go back uh, for the embryo transfer. So you can make a trip out of it or fly in, fly out, two quick trips. 
and everything else is done in negotiation with the UK clinic. Do you want to talk about your reason to go to America? I'm just wondering whether we need to move. Because basically, the hotel reception guy has now joined in the football game. Yeah. Well <laughs> oh, yeah, the football's getting more exciting. Right, I think we'll move down to the other end of the lobby. Right, let's sit here in the window. It's a little bit quieter. So the decision for us was really clean. So um, it was to do with anonymity around the donors. So of course Spain is cheaper, of course Spain is nearer. Um, I, as a control freak in my mid-40s, couldn't bear the idea of a random Spanish doctor picking the genetics of my child, which is what happens. And there were also, for me, issues of responsibility. So, God forbid, there would be some genetic problem or medical issue with that child. You'd have to get a court order to get the information about that donor from Spain. So I felt, and I don't use this word lightly, it felt irresponsible to me. And in the dealings, and I'm sure this is not true of every clinic in Spain, but on a personal level, my dealings with the Spanish clinics were a bit manana and chaotic, which is charming in a tapas bar, not so much when you're desperate for a child. And uh, the UK was really simply an issue of anonymity. And for me, not about protecting myself, but about protecting my future child. So the idea of a woman, I don't know, in her early 20s, uh, signing a waiver to say that she didn't mind contact at 18, how that woman's going to feel in her 40s with a family of her own is not necessarily the same. And I couldn't bear the idea of that rejection and not being sort of able to have any sense of how that might go in the future. I think that's true for a lot of people. That's why there's a shortage of donors and people wanting to receive eggs in this country. So just explain that. So as far as your daughter's biological mother, she'll never be able to find out, is that right? Well, there, therein lies the rub, because never is a, is a big word, and we live in a world of constant evolution in terms of, you know, the digital era, and we're soon going to be all identified by our DNA, apparently. And there's already something called the donor-sibling network, which exists online. Uh, so currently I have photographs of my egg donor as a baby and as a child and as an adult and I have uh, full medical history, personal statements, all sorts of information. But no name? No name. Um, so do I believe that it's going to be the case that it's impossible for my daughter to find her if she wants to in X years time? No, I don't. Um, the clinic that I use pride themselves on that anonymity. That's a sort of USP, and that's worked for some people and doesn't for others. But I have, I think the day that I, to, to use my counsellor's word again, graduated from counselling, is when she said, you know, how would you feel if your child was able to locate through that donor sibling network, the donor, you know, when she was 18, 20? And the honest answer is I would be delighted to be able to look her in the eye and thank her for giving me my life, essentially. Mm. So that leads me to the question of the importance or the emphasis that you might put on explaining to Daisy, mm. your daughter, how she came to be and whether that is a part of, does she need to know that or does she not? She can already explain, aged four, in a sort of somewhat half-assed way that the mummy bits weren't working so we had to go to America and mix the daddy bits with a little cell called an egg from the lady and so she knows. Um, she's sort of mostly interested in how sweet she was and how many presents she got and who came to see her when she was born at the moment. Um, so I'm not going to show her pictures of the donor until she asks. 
but she's fully aware of the story. And, you know, for me, it's I present it to her as something which is very positive and it's very easy really for me to tell her that story without passing on any kind of hang up so she's very happy about it I'm not comfortable with talking publicly about anything that she doesn't know so I've made her aware from a very young age mm. the received wisdom is that don't conceive children and uh, only run into problems where they sort of discover it or it's mm. disclosed to them as a teenager and, and you're now kind of immersed in this in this world in that you're speaking to women on a on a daily basis in the work that you're doing and you was we were talking about that emotional support and you not necessarily being somebody qualified however you're qualified with your experience and I know you obviously take a lot of pride in what you do and I'm just interested in the I suppose some of the insight from some of the conversations that you're having with women are there common concerns there are really common concerns, and I find it sort of quite moving, actually. So I Sorry, I've just got to explain that we've managed to locate ourselves by the um, sliding doors of the hotel entrance of this crazy lobby, in case you're wondering what that noise is. I'm just going to leave all of this in, because I think it's just adding to the, the comedy. Carry on. I just noticed the cloud light, light shade over there. Have you seen the big cloud? Yeah, of course. I've ordered one. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, obviously I've spoken to about 200 women. On paper, you'd think, apart from, albeit non-functioning, possibly, wombs and boobs we have nothing else in common but there are absolutely common responses uh to considering donor egg treatment uh one is what i call um the fear of this the ugly stranger baby so whenever i say this people laugh in great relief because i articulate it so this idea that if you're if you're borrowing an egg from an essentially anonymous donor you know albeit you have a photograph everyone can look halfway decent in one photograph that you're going to have this monstrous, hideous child, you know, with this scabby-headed, monstrous baby that we all see in the street and think, actually, I'd rather not have one. Because no donor is going to give a bad picture of themselves to the agency, are they? Exactly. So the fear that you're going to... You know, we've all met babies where we go, oh, lovely baby grow. That'd be that, that you're going to give birth to something hideous and have to spend 18 years pretending that you think it's cute. <laughs> so that's a huge common area, and we talk a lot about oxytocin and the fact that my child looked like a fat Korean dictator, but I thought the sun and moon and stars had come out, so... <laughs> You know, like any new mother, you don't see that. She also happens to be extraordinarily beautiful, so that was irrelevant to me. So I'm sort of quite good at expressing people's darkest thoughts, I think. Another one is, yeah, yeah, but it won't work for me. That's something we all think. I'm going to make the psychological leap, I'm going to find the money, I'm going to do all this, and it just won't work for me. Um, and I think that's a sort of self-protecting thing. Uh, not bonding sort of rejecting it oh, yeah all the sort of standard things and then a, a, another one that I'm starting to really identify is people who, who are make their peace with, with using a donor but are adamant about not disclosing to the child so they do a sort of fingers in the ears la 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 I'm just going to pretend it's mine and I increasingly say to those women just have a bit more counselling because that was my first response that's everyone's first response and it's just a little bit of denial and part of the processing of it Now your experience now as a mother to a four-year-old who was from a donor and hearing those kind of concerns from those women you can obviously now recount four years of, of experience of things that you might have initially thought were going to be an issue and we talked a bit about nature nurture and you were describing Daisy your little girl as mini me and mm -hmm. there's obviously so much of you in her from the way that you parent and so would the kind of wiser you say to the you with all the concerns before it just none of it's going to matter 
Yeah, this is something I absolutely say to women at every stage of the process, which is, I can promise you that everything you worry about this end will be irrelevant. The minute you're pregnant, actually, replaced by huge swathes of other worries, but irrelevant. And I think the problem is that when you're considering donor egg treatment, it's all so hypothetical. And from the minute that you're pregnant and then mothering, it's all so hyper-practical. It's sort of the opposite, that you're too tired and too busy keeping them fed and alive and their fingers out of plug holes, that there's sort of no time for that kind of examination of it. And I also say to people, you know, there's no big decision I've ever made in my life where I was 100% sure. I wasn't 100% sure walking down the aisle. Quite right, that was joking. My advice would be just jump, because it sort of comes down to how badly you want one. And the thing about using a donor is you get so much of the experience. You get to be pregnant, you get to give birth, you get to breastfeed. I think I just wanted to do as much of the mothering, you know, to do the thing that my body was made to do as much as I possibly could. And actually for those women who need to use a surrogate who are not able to do those things, I would say the birth and the pregnancy and all those things feel utterly irrelevant to me now if that's not a completely paradoxical thing to say yeah because the mothering is is an ongoing and day-to-day thing Mm -hmm. now we've not really talked about your other half and his acceptance of this being the journey or the route that you were going to take was he just whatever it takes or was there some more in-depth discussion about it or do you have to get his head around it because for example a friend of mine who's got a, a new baby after numerous cycles of failed fertility treatment had success but they were at the stage where they were told her egg health wasn't good and they were going to have a don't have to use a donor egg and she was like absolutely not she was adamant and i think he was up for whatever it would take but i'm interested whether there had been any reluctance or any resistance from the other half so i we could do a whole podcast about my other half and his flaws (laughs) but on this example he's been great so i am shocked probably the most shocking thing for me about my experience of working for uh, the Americans is how much of the time the problem is with the men and how many men I need to speak to and um, my husband was fully on board from the beginning he recognised that the person who needed to make the adjustment was me and he was fully supportive of that and um, I have to say I get quite frustrated when the problems are with the men because I feel like it's the women who have to make the psychological adjustment and and I had a, a, a patient's husband say to me the other day but I wanted to have a child that was mine and hers and I said well do you want the list of the things that I wanted and I haven't got you know life is tough move forwards so no he was mine was utterly supportive of me and my journey and what I needed to do so for people listening as we'll draw this to a close because the whole gaggle of ladies have now just come to sit near the giant deck chair. If there is some reluctance on either party, you said that you speak to the men as well, mm. would a big piece of advice be to go and get... I mean, I'm always harping on about counselling, I feel, at the moment because I just feel that it's so not accepted. I was talking in my last podcast episode about how patients are apparently reluctant to have counselling because they feel it's going to impact negatively on how their clinic perceived them, which I was just what you know and I want to stress more 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 and more that it's you that needs this emotional support of the clinic well they, sh- they won't take it they won't judge you on it anyway but this perception needs to stop that it's going to have any negative impact so would your advice be that if there's this discussion this debate this not non-acceptance to just 
you know, put yourself forward and, and, and talk it through? I suppose a few things to say about that. I think the trouble about councillors is that there's a sort of, there's a huge disparity between the great ones and the terrible ones. I suppose when you move into a specialism like fertility counselling, people tend to be really on point in terms of their advice and, and their experience. I would say probably donor conception is not for everyone. Um, maybe try and seek out someone like me or someone who's been through it. And it, it, that it's really super important that both of you are fully on board with it and also have made a full decision about how to approach it with family, how to approach it with friends, how to approach it with your child so that there's none of that discussion to be had when it's quote unquote too late so that you're on the same page about how to deal with it. I feel very strongly that secrets have a way of coming out and um, that actually secrets are connected to shame and if you feel an impulse to keep it secret from anyone then you need to sort of interrogate your feelings about it. I was adamant that I wanted a child and I would do anything it took to get one and it is without question the best thing I've ever done and the thing of which I'm most proud and whilst I recognise that everyone has their own journey I would also say just do it I have never spoken to anyone who's done it and regretted it and do you find in the work that you're doing now it's kind of continuing the kind of support and counselling for yourself on this journey by talking about it and helping others yeah it's certainly incredibly rewarding for me I mean only the other morning I get in the bath and I just got a little whatsapp message and I clicked on it and there was a beautiful newborn picture of a patient of mine who just was obviously so delighted and happy and it's incredibly rewarding for me to speak to women who are sobbing and at the depths of despair and to then hear from them when they're at their happiest. So if I can just normalise, that, that's the big message from me. It's normal from the minute that, that that blastocyst has turned into an embryo and it has a heartbeat, you're just in the club with everyone else. You're just probably a slightly older, slightly more anxious mother along with everyone else. Yeah. There's slightly more emotions to try and manage because it's been so much of a roller coaster. Right, brilliant, thank you. I was just thinking as we were drawing to a close, where would be the best place for us to take a selfie? I have taken some other pictures, but to, to capture. So we're gonna go and do that. I will put all your details on the show notes of how people can, can get in touch with you. We'll talk about that and follow you on social media and stuff. And thank you for just talking it through because I think that you should a really interesting insight into I think what a lot of people, especially if people, and I know people listen to this that have had failed cycles and are wondering whether to stop or whether to, to then move towards working with a donor. And it's a lot of acceptance, isn't it? Uh, yeah, sorry, that is something that I wanted to say, which is that is the trickiest moment for every patient I speak to, which is just one more, just one more. And I have so many women saying to me, I've been told I have a 2% chance, so I'm going to go again with my own eggs at 45, 46, 47. And to be honest with you, Natalie, I find that really hard. And I try and say, sweetheart, if somebody said to you there was a 97, 98% chance that you won't catch a bus, you wouldn't stand up. But I acknowledge that that's a very tricky point. And um, I absolutely encourage anyone who's wrestling with it to give me a call or find someone else who's lived it. So sort of lift it from that dry literature to a sort of three-dimensional human experience and it will give you a better understanding of it which is why I wanted to talk to you. Very good choice. <laughs> right, come on, let's go and have a selfie.
So before I tell you more about how you can find out about Sarah, just a few notes from my sponsors who make this podcast possible, because as much as I would love to just continue doing it out of the goodness of my heart, um, I need to have some sponsorships helping me make it happen to make it as good as it can be for you. If you're looking for a supplement to take whilst trying to conceive, Pregnacare Conception and Wellman Conception provide advanced nutritional support. They include zinc, vitamin D and the exact levels of folic acid recommended for women by the UK Department of Health. Pregnacare is expert nutritional care while trying for a baby. And to find out more, visit thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash shop. The Fertility Podcast is sponsored by Infertile Life. For you, if you're trying to conceive and struggling with preparing yourself for IVF treatment, the Enhanced Fertility Programme will enable you to improve your physical and mental health and get the support you need to get pregnant faster. It's all online. And to find out how you can join today, visit infertile-life.com forward slash EFP. I also just want to remind you of another project that I've launched, which is the ultimatefertilityguide.com, which is an online directory of all different fertility services that I'm constantly adding to, to give you kind of just more ideas of different things that are out there in one place, rather than tirelessly searching through Google for answers. And everybody that's signed up is then taking part in a Facebook Live session where I'll be interviewing them and getting you to ask some questions. So do make sure you keep your eyes on the Fertility Podcast page on Facebook, which is where the streams happen. So you get to um, submit your questions either ahead or, or during the live stream. But I really just want to continue giving you the chance to have access and ask questions to different experts within the fertility world who can hopefully help you get some answers. So the show notes for this episode are thefertilitypodcast.com forward slash donor egg. Very straightforward. Do go and check them out. Sarah's details are there as well as the details of the clinic that she works for. My details are there too. And my email is natalie at thefertilitypodcast.com if you want to tell me about those amazing events or stuff going on within the TTC community where you're at so I can get it on my radar. Don't forget to go and check out the competition that I'm running on my social media to win some of the books that we've been reviewing in previous episodes. It's on my Instagram at fertilitybody and at the Fertility Podcast page. And I've probably been tweeting about it as well. My Twitter is at fertilitybody too. If you haven't subscribed to this podcast through your favorite podcast app, it'd be awesome to get you to do that. And if you feel like leaving a review, again, that's always so delightful of you. Thank you as always for your support. And until the next time, time.